there's something about a little child's laughter, isn't there? You can't help but smile yourself. It's infectious. <laughs> little kids are so great. I love you, Papa. You're great, Papa. I love you so much. Um, you're sweet. Amen. Yeah, but we all know that laughter and their overall cuteness isn't the only side of little children. Yeah, that sound at 2 a.m. And of course, they learn to say no and learn to misbehave. Well, this week on the Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder leads the group in a study of a psalm, one he calls a song of childlike faith. Childlike faith, not childish faith. The whole difference between childish and childlike is something I'd like for us to explore mm. in this series of conversations. We're going to do it through a psalm. But our entry into the psalm actually comes from the words of Jesus because he had some things to say about childlike. Now, we talk so much about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and spiritual development and all those things. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Yeah. There's a piece here that you can't ever forget. And that's this piece of childlikeness. Yeah. And so pull your chair up to the table with Bill Crowder. Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry as they study Psalm 131, a song of childlike, not childish, childlike faith. <laughs> and welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from our Daily Bread Ministries. I'm Brian Hedinga, and I'm looking forward to spending the next couple of podcasts in the Psalms with the group. Now in this one, Bill is going to have us focus on Psalm 131 and the childlike aspect of having faith in God. It's an important theme in our understanding of faith. And then in our next podcast, we'll flip the coin over and talk about Psalm 18, which is what Bill calls a song of mature reflection. So how maturity is also significant when it comes to having faith in God. I think the contrast will broaden our understanding. So I hope you'll make it a point to study with us. Okay, so let's get started. Bill wants Elisa and Daniel and Rasul to talk about childlike versus childish. Is there a difference? Well, let's listen. Okay, so what's the difference between being childlike as opposed to being childish? <laughs> I think we can see it right around our faces right here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's a semantics question? Like, is there really a difference between yeah. childlike and childish? Or... I think there is. Okay. All right. Childish, I think, in a negative, immature mm-hmm. kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, petty, maybe. Or all the worst impulses of what Tantrum-y. Yes. I think of... Like the wonder and all, like when you take a kid to like the aquarium and the eyes just gonna go. And there comes a time, especially I live in New York City, where almost like skepticism and cynicism has become like synonymous with this sense of being more mature perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's almost not cool to be amazed at Mm -hmm. something or in awe or something or enthusiastic. Whereas that's that childlike wonder is something that Mm -hmm. I think is a good thing. And I think that's different than being childish. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a great description. I really Mm -hmm. like that. There's an innocence in childlikeness, and it's unapologetic. It's just simple and pure. There's a purity. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas childishness to me is, you know, it's like I said, just bratty. It's just kind of like my way, you know, kind of thing. I wonder, what is it 
as an adult that makes it so hard to be childlike. And some of it may be cultural conditioning, like you're talking about mm. in New York, where it's just not cool to be yeah. mm-hmm. awestruck or something. But what are some things that keep us from experiencing childlikeness mm. as adults? I think where I've experienced this recently is just feeling the weight of life on my shoulders. So whether it's like taking care of kids or providing or mm. seeing sickness show up in our family that's like not a cold, but this person might die, just that weight of life makes it difficult to be easygoing like I see in my kids. I love that, Daniel, because we put defenses around us, Mm -hmm. you know, as we take on responsibility and as we grow up. And to me, the answer would be that vulnerability, you know, to Mm -hmm. allow that vulnerability to be present. It's expensive. We can be hurt when Mm -hmm. we're childlike because we're Mm -hmm. undefended and we're simpler. Yeah. By contrast, why is it so easy as an adult to be childish? (laughs) It's just kind of true to our nature, isn't it? (laughs) It's kind of who we are a little bit. I mean, there's some things you just don't outgrow. I think of the major league batter who swings and strikes out and slams his bat on the ground and throws his helmet and stomps off. And I think, wow, I was three once. (laughs) But the whole difference between childish and childlike is something I'd like for us to explore Mm. in this series of conversations. We're going to do it through a psalm, but our entry into the psalm actually comes from the words of Jesus, because he had some things to say about childlike, Mm -hmm. uh, even though the scriptures don't use that exact terminology. The way Jesus describes it, it feels very different from childish. So we want to look just for a minute at Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, and then we're going to transition to look at a psalm that I think is going to resonate with Jesus' words. So, Elisa, would you read Matthew 18, 2 through 4? Okay. And he, Jesus, called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child... He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. So he called a child. He says, become like children, humbles himself as this child. So three times in three verses, Jesus uses a child as a reference point for something Mm -hmm. really important. Now, anybody have any idea what the context was that prompted this moment? The verse before it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then oh. is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Ah. Uh-huh. And uh. Jesus says greatest in the kingdom. That's right. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but for all the years that I've been a follower of Christ, this text always surprises me because we talk so much about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and spiritual development, and all those things. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Yeah. There's a piece here that you can't ever forget, and that's this piece of childlikeness. Yeah, or we quote the Apostle Paul who says, mm. you need to move past milk to the solid food yeah. of the faith, right? Yeah. <laughs> when I became a man, I put away childish <laughs> things. Well. Yeah. This seems to be different than childish. Hmm. It seems to be childlike. And I think, you know, as surprising that as that is, there's a part of me that wonders why it should be so surprising when we have a faith that revolves around a new birth. <laughs> Interesting. Where there's some element of where we're starting over again. Now, 
when Jesus says these words, obviously, as Rasul reminded us, he's saying it to people who are worried about greatness, who are worried Mm -hmm. about prestige, who are worried about status and standing and all those things. And he brings this little kid and says, Mm -hmm. here's what we're going for, guys. This is what we're going for. You see that word picture in your imagination. How does that hit you? I think about the cultural context of children being, to your point, that other example where people assume hey, big people are talking. You know, like how at Thanksgiving, you got the little kids table. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. kind of like, mm-hmm. we're at the big table. This is where the real things happen. And in that context where they're almost an afterthought or just like, you know, not even a thought at all, for Jesus to put them in the center mm-hmm. and say, no, actually, this is what we need to be like. That would have been completely counterintuitive. Yeah, in New Testament times, that is how a child was viewed. Mm -hmm. You know, the way, like in the 50s, we ate before dad even got home from work kind of thing. But yeah, that was their role. They weren't counted as adults. They Mm -hmm. weren't really counted until they were of age. So great point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about some of their expectations of who the Messiah would be and the type of kingdom that he would be building. Uh, It was very much a, he's going to come in, help us overthrow Rome, free us, to have somebody on David's throne again that will rule, yeah. there'll be peace and mm-hmm. all this. So like the idea of greatest in the kingdom, that question is centering around who are going to be the people on your right and on your left, which the disciples argued about in another story, mm-hmm. right? And so it's this idea of like, as we're building this new rule on earth, mm-hmm. who are the people that are greatest? And so that makes it even another layer of surprising because mm-hmm. he's pulling a kid and you're like, well, how are these kids going to fight off the Romans? <laughs> like, how are they going to be part of that movement? Yeah. Yeah. Well, huh. what I would like to suggest to you is that, yes, this would have been pretty shocking. <laughs> and yes, I still find it a little bit shocking to me today. But if they were paying attention, there might have been an echo from David. <laughs> because there's a psalm in the Songs of Ascent, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Psalm 131, I think, has a lot to say about what it means to be childlike in our relationship with God. And I think it's something we can learn from in a really, I hope, will be a rich and wonderful way that maybe will get us over the skepticism and into the awestruck again. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) what I'd like for you to do is there's only three verses, so this is real easy. So each of you take one of the verses. Okay, who gets to go first, second, and third? You have to um, decide Let's see. um, (laughs) Very childlike. The greatest (laughs) in the reading of Psalm 131 will be Daniel, who gets verse one. (laughs) And then I'll let you two fight over two and three. Psalm 131, a song of quiet trust, a song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and and forevermore. Okay, so the child part's in there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right there. And I want us to explore that. But first, it's always helpful when you're in the Psalms to get some context and some background so we know what we're dealing with. First of all, it's in book five mm-hmm. of the five books of Psalms. So Daniel, what's the theme of book five? Yeah, so the Psalms divided by five books is significant because when the law was given to Israel, it was in five books called the Pentateuch. And uh, a lot of scholars believe the way that the Psalms are 
built on top of each other, the way book one, two, three, four, five work, is they're telling the big story of Israel. And so it starts starting with David in books one and two, and then moving through the other kingdoms, the breaking through of those people that came in and took Israel out into exile. And then book five is they're back and they're celebrating God's redemption and his return. And the last five Psalms are the Hallel Psalms or the the praise God Psalms that both begin and end with Alleluia because all is made right with the world. Mm -hmm. Not now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but also now as they look forward Mm -hmm. to when God redeems the world. And as a part of that, having returned, this is one of a set of 15 psalms, a subset of 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascent. What was that all about? Yeah, I love this group of psalms, by the way. Ascent as in going up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was the song of pilgrims on their way journeying to Jerusalem. And it was up because it was more on the higher ground Mm -hmm. uh, above sea level than the rest of Israel. Um, I also love them because they're really short. And and so there Uh have been seasons where you're busy and things like that, where I found these really a helpful way to make sure I still get some time in with the Lord. And I think that's no coincidence yeah. because mm. they were traveling. Yeah. So yeah. in that same yeah. aspect, yeah. it's like, and I love that, that yeah. God even made space for the fact that I understand, you know, yeah. you got the kids and <laughs> you know, you got these tents and you get, you know, got a schedule. So here, how about these three verses? That you over? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. There are only three Psalms that have only three verses and all three of them are in the songs of ascent. 131, 133, and 134. Now, just for the record, the shortest psalm, in case you're ever on Jeopardy and they do psalms trivia, the shortest psalm is Psalm 117, which is only two verses. Okay. But the only three that have three verses are all right in this cluster together, and each one of them contributes to the preparation for the worship times that they're Mm going to have when they arrive in Jerusalem. So as you said, Russell, as they are going up, they are singing. And as they are singing, sometimes like Psalm 130, they're singing about repentance. Sometimes in Psalm 131, they're just singing about being in God's presence. Mm. Like a little child Mm. is comfortable. And like that little child was comfortable in the presence of Jesus Mm. in Matthew 18, David's leading them to sing about being comfortable in the presence of Jehovah as they go up to worship him in Jerusalem. We want to see what that looks like and see if we can gain some things from it in our own times in God's presence as his children. Okay, y'all are familiar with the seven deadly sins well, list, wait, right? Let's not say how familiar we are with the seven <laughs> deadly sins. What do you mean by familiar? Yes. Let's unpack that for a moment, Elisa. If you remember, pride is number one on the hit parade of the seven deadly sins. But are there times when pride is a good thing? Yeah, I think about the semantic range of the word pride. Like, yeah. I think it's used in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Like, when someone is proud of their kids or proud of something that they've accomplished. I don't think they mean it in the same way of like the type of pride that exalts one's own self over other people. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's different meanings, but being proud of something you've accomplished, like in a sense of, yeah, I did that. Mm -hmm. I crushed that presentation or, (laughs) you know, I aced that test. I think Mm -hmm. that that's different than, 
I'm better than everyone else in this room mm-hmm. because I'm smarter than them yeah. as a result of me mm-hmm. facing this test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, especially in the examples you just gave, because those are examples of you probably worked really hard toward the goal, right? right? Whether it's acing the test or whatever. And there's something that's fulfilling about that, Mm -hmm. right? That's within us that Mm -hmm. when we see a goal and we work hard to get there, and the Bible's full of examples of celebrating when those types of things happen too. And celebration could be seen as a type of proudness or Mm -hmm. pride of something being Mm -hmm. accomplished. There's a delight maybe is the word I think about when I watch my grandson pitch. And when I see him deliver what I know he's worked so hard to bring together in a moment. And the ump actually goes, strike. (laughs) But when all that happens at once, there's this delight because I know it's pleasing to him. And in that way, it's pleasing all around, except for the guy who's at bat. But, you know, I I love Mm -hmm. that. I love that. Okay. So then having decided that because of semantic range, that's a really good phrase, because of semantic range, there can be ways in which pride can be a really good, healthy, appropriate thing. When are the times that it's not so appropriate? And you've hinted at a couple of those yeah. already, but let's take that I think a when it's tied further. to conceit or arrogance or better than, it's a elevation above others. Yeah. Or even and a self-righteousness. I've made myself right yeah. somehow. Maybe when it starts to change the way we see the world a little bit too. Mm-hmm. So like changing the way I view myself as if I'm more of X, Y, or Z than I really am, or mm-hmm. even just a bigger deal. <laughs> when you change the way you view yourself, that will automatically impact how you view other people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say mm-hmm. as the second part of that is how you mm-hmm. view others. So sure. elevating my own understanding of God over someone else's mm-hmm. or, or something like that. I'm going to just paraphrase C.S. Lewis, who said there's one vice that everyone absolutely despises when they see it in other people and are often incapable of seeing it in ourselves. And that's the vice of pride. I got to just jump in for a second because I was a young believer when I first got hold of mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. And when I got to this chapter on pride and he was talking about its insidiousness, you know, and I was like, yes. And he was like, and I was like, I just can't stand people who are very <laughs> proud. And then he says, and if that really bothers you more than anything else, it's because you suffer with pride. And I literally mm. dropped the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It hit me like a strike of lightning, yeah. how mm. on point that that was. Yeah. And I was like, man, mm. maybe there's something in me that gets mm. triggered. Cause he's basically like, cause you see other people kind of strutting like a peacock and you figure yeah. why do they think they should get that attention I should yeah, get that attention right. <laughs> and that's an element of pride because yeah. that kind of pride has something to do with judgment doesn't it yeah. it's like I'm going to sit in the seat of the evaluator right. and I'm going to say you're all this and I'm this and none of us really gets to do that right. and the moral superiority yeah. that's the thing that where it's so subtle yeah. where it's like I can be self-righteous judging people of pride and that is an element of the pride that I am expressing myself. In that same quote from C.S. Lewis, he concluded by saying that the the virtue that is the moral opposite of pride is humility. And I've often heard it said that humility is the virtue that you lose the second you think you've got it because then you become proud of that. And that's where it becomes, as Lewis said, insidious, right? So, we started in our first conversation to talk about this whole idea of childish versus childlike. And we're seeing Psalm 131. And as David, king of Israel, 
position of authority, he launches this conversation by thinking about the value of humility. Rasul, would you just read verse one for us? That'll be enough for today. Yep. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Hmm. Now, there are two different elements here, and each one of them has some complexity to it. My heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty. Now, I think we sort of get the my heart is not proud part, right? But what might haughty eyes be like? Would that have to do, going back to Daniel's words, with how you see others? Yeah, and maybe how you start to look at God as well. Because in my translation, it says, my eyes are not raised too high. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a contrast in the scriptures of looking up toward God or looking up toward ourselves. Yeah. And so I almost wonder if that's part of this too, right? So Mm -hmm. in the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves, build their tower into the heavens Mm -hmm. to make a name for themselves. But then the Bible is also full of language of like, set your eyes on what's above, not Mm -hmm. on what's below. So it's Mm -hmm. this idea of looking toward God as the Mm -hmm. source of our hope, of our strength or whatever. So I almost wonder if the haughty eyes is when we're looking ahead of building our name for ourselves or who we trust in. This is actually a Song of Ascents, which is an interesting play. If our eyes are not haughty as we're Mm -hmm. climbing towards the place where God supposedly is, temple is, etc. I think you're onto it. It's like we're not viewing as if we are God. We're not taking God's Mm -hmm. place in looking. Instead, we're looking up toward him. Yeah, that's really good, Elisa. And you know what else is just striking me too? So if they're walking up to Jerusalem... Again, my translation says, my eyes are not raised too high. If they go up higher than Jerusalem, they're looking at all the high places where all the other gods are worshipped. If their eyes are on oh, the temple, okay. then they're, they're worshipping hmm. and following the one true God. So hmm. I wonder if that's another layer. A lot of tweaks there. It might be. And I want you to keep that in mind. And I'm going to ask Rasul to read again the second half of the verse. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Okay. That feels very substantial. And there are two different ways that scholars kind of look at that. One of the ways of looking at it is I don't try to move into things where I don't belong or where I'm kind of out of my league or out of my zone or whatever. There's a sense of of appropriateness. There's a sense of, you know, I don't try to be more than I am. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It Mm -hmm. reminds me of God saying in Isaiah, you know, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Mm -hmm. And that's specifically what some other scholars say. They say, I don't try to unravel the mysteries of God that are too deep for me. So one is too high. The other is too deep Mm. in a sense, right? Okay. I almost wonder if there's a layer of like obsessing over trying to figure everything out too yeah. here. And I guess it's it's related to one of the examples you just gave of digging into the mysteries of God or these different theological concepts that we argue about in church or whatever. It's like obsessing over trying to figure this out mm-hmm. instead of resting in the mystery that God is bigger than I could ever understand fully. Yeah, to me it relates to the haughty eye idea of setting your ambition beyond what is appropriate. For example, you know, you ever been in a conversation or had someone be in a conversation with you 
when it's clear they don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I've been that person before uh, and I yeah. just make myself look like a fool because <laughs> I'm like, I don't know the particulars yeah. of this, you know, topic like you do. And so there's a certain humility involved yeah. with recognizing I'm not qualified to be able to mm-hmm. speak into this that when I'm struggling with mm-hmm. pride, I don't want to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to get on a rant here, but I think that's one of the great challenges of living in a world filled with social media is that everybody has a platform. So a lot of people have things that they say that are launched to the entire world. And you say, you know, well, am I really qualified to speak on that subject? And I don't know. <laughs> If I am. And that kind of humility, that kind of pause is a little bit lost in our world because, Mm -hmm. well, just because it's my opinion, it must be right. And that's kind of that arrogance and that pride. It's interesting. David wrote this and we've seen it's to be sung going up, ascending to God. What's interesting is the Midrash, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, took these phrases and kind of lined them up with events in David's life. Now, they're not saying this is the way it was, but they're saying, you know, you could kind of see some parallels where David in humility reacts to whatever is happening in his life. My heart was not haughty when Samuel anointed him as king, nor were my eyes lofty when I slew Goliath, nor did I swagger about when I took the throne. Nor did I accept as do things too high for me, like when I brought the ark back into Jerusalem. There's this element of place and understanding himself in relation to God, in relation to his times, in relation to his culture. The best phrase I can think of is (laughs) self-awareness as opposed to self-absorption. Yeah, I think about when um, Jesus says, you know, come all who are weary and burdened, and you'll find rest for your souls. When he expounds on that, he says, take my yoke and learn from me because I am meek mm-hmm. and, and humble or lowly in heart. And I think that there's this, when I thought about that, I was trying to unpack that before. And one of the things that always fascinates me about Jesus is he doesn't obsess or concern himself too much with how other people see him <laughs> or where things are going to rank in mm-hmm. terms of how they fall out. He mm-hmm. just kind of trusts himself with God's plan. And there's a freedom in that, mm-hmm. that Jesus is inviting us into mm-hmm. that means that I don't have to be obsessed about yeah. other people's opinions of me. Yeah. There's a sense in which pride brings chains mm. and humility brings freedom, mm-hmm. whether it's freedom to say, you know, God's God and I'm not, yes. and I'm going to trust him with the mysteries of the universe and figure <laughs> he's got this mm-hmm. or, I don't have to worry about whether people think I'm this or I'm that. I'm a child of God. Mm. That's enough for me. Humility can bring this great freedom that we may not experience any other way in life. And the fact that Jesus modeled it makes it that much more compelling for us to try to walk in those steps. Yeah, that is such a great insight, isn't it? Pride brings chains. Humility gives freedom. Well, glad you're here with the group. They'll continue this look at Psalm 131, this song of childlike faith, in just a moment. And Bill will take them into a conversation about contentment. Would you say that you are a contented person? And if not, what would it take for you to be content? Are you sure about that? (laughs) Because most of the time, I think we feel like, you know, if only, if only 
I had more money. If only I didn't have this problem or that problem. If only fill in the blank. Then I'd be content. Well, they'll explore the subject of contentment as we find it in Psalm 131, this song of childlike faith, in just a moment. Now, if you're enjoying this study of Psalm 131 with the group, then I think you're also going to like a book that Bill Crowder has written called My Hope is in You, Psalms that Comfort and Mend the Soul. Now, in this book, Bill walks with you through 10 more psalms in the Bible, showing you how the psalmists identified with many of our most complicated and painful emotions and how God is with you close by through all of it. This will be a great follow-up to these Discover the Word studies in the Psalms. And so if you'd like to look at 10 more Psalms with Bill, I'd encourage you to order a copy of My Hope is in You. Not only is Bill one of your friends that you discover the Word with, but he's also been a pastor for over 20 years. And his pastor's heart is reflected in these pages. You'll find a link on our discovertheword.org website, or you can search for it in our store. That's My Hope is in You by Bill Crowder. And now back to our study of Psalm 131, a song of childlike faith. Some of us at this table are old enough to remember this commercial. Carnation Milk said that their milk was better because it came from contented cows. I don't know what you have to do to make a cow contented, but whatever it was, they said it made for better milk. Okay. What's even more important is that phrase caught on. Hmm. And people in the business world actually wrote books about how to make your employees more productive by making them more content. Lesson one, don't call them cows. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very flattering. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's a really good point. <laughs> but when the work environment is good and when certain elements of the job line up well with your skill set and when you know compensation and benefits are in place... There is something there that helps you be more productive, isn't well, there? Well, I think today's reality is more like, don't you want to work for corporate headquarters that have, you know, all the workout places and you can work from home and you can, you know, have Starbucks in your backyard. You know what I mean? I think that's our current mm-hmm. version of that happy yeah. employees. I think part of what it does is when you care about an employee's or a team member's entire life mm-hmm. and you try to help them solve other problems in their life, Work is more productive because instead of having to worry about everything, you get to focus, you get more creativity mm-hmm. because you can focus mm-hmm. on your job without worrying as much about all the other things yeah. maybe that are happening at home. Yeah, and I think it offers a certain statement about how the employer or the person you're working with sees you. Right. Like they don't just see you as what you produce. They yeah. see you and care about who you are. So like, I remember a time when, you know, I was in ministry and um, my grandma passed away Mm -hmm. and, you know, my supervisor was like, take as much time as you need, you know, like take care of home. And it was Mm -hmm. like my humanity and my kind of struggle is going to impact your expectations of me for you to just adjust and make space Mm -hmm. for that makes me when I come back even want to work harder oh, and, and yeah. because now I know yeah. that you see and you value who I am, not just what I do. This isn't just transactional. Yeah. yeah. You know, there is this thing of contentment that changes not only our productivity, 
changes our worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It changes how we process life, how we do relationships, how we view God. And we're in this little series of conversations on Psalm 131, where we started off talking about childlikeness versus childishness. And <laughs> as we come into verse 2, we're going to see David, the psalmist, talking about a childlike kind of contentment. What he's going to give us in verse 2 is, for my money, one of those beautiful word pictures anywhere in the Bible. So, Elisa, would you read Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2? And when you get to verse 2, just kind of live with it a little bit as you read it and think about the words and let all of us process the kind of picture that David's describing Mm -hmm. here. Mm. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Wow. As I was working on this and preparing for these conversations, I just had to put everything aside and just sit and think about that phrase Mm -hmm. and ask myself, how many times in my life have I intentionally done that? Because that's the tweak here, Bill. This passage, like so much of our lives, is about a choice Mm -hmm. that we make. It's hard to be content when you don't work in a place that provides a five-star lunch, you know, and you know your brother does or whatever. How do we find contentment when we still have wants? and more important, needs that aren't met. And I'm hearing in this language, and maybe you can help me understand it better, there is a a choice in here. There is a positioning of David. Mm -hmm. I have calmed and quieted myself. Mm -hmm. I have composed myself. Like you put aside the study and sat Mm -hmm. and thought about that reality in order Mm -hmm. to embrace it. Yeah. And we're using the word content or contentment But when I see this, I think it's bigger than that too, right? Contentment is one aspect, but there's also the like worry aspect in life, right? Or the unsettlingness that comes when we feel the weight of the world on our shoulders and stuff as well. So there's like the contented side for maybe anxiousness Mm -hmm. and some of that. But there's also the places where our spirit, our soul, our lives are disquieted. And it's not because we're not content. It's because life's difficult or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the question that's coming out to me Bill, then I'm glad you're here to answer for us. Is <laughs> how do you even do that? What does yeah. that look like to calm yeah. and quiet our souls? And how do you do it in a world that is doing everything it can to prevent it from happening? Mm. Well, maybe it yeah. starts with the verse prior that we just focused in on is a humble heart. You know, mm-hmm. there's a positioning here of, mm-hmm. I don't have to have all the answers. And as Russell, you were saying, you know, Jesus has the yoke that I need to sit under. I don't need to carry my own load, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe it starts with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about the word picture that David uses here, that like a weaned child with its mother. You know, anyone who's had kids knows that there's crying involved and there's mm-hmm. discomfort involved. And mm-hmm. But it seems like in the context of the psalm, he's trying to zoom out and give perspective about that circumstance to go, you know mm-hmm. that it's better mm-hmm. and necessary for you to have experience that difficulty and that transition and that your mom was doing what was best for you mm-hmm. and making that happen in the same way in your difficult experiences now 
God knows what's best for you. And when mm-hmm. you have that perspective, it can give you contentment because you recognize that you are no longer the primary arbiter of mm-hmm. understanding all that is happening to you, mm-hmm. that there's a, a greater perspective and plan and one who cares for you like a mother cares for a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. So, Elisa, what I heard in you and your description was a humble heart. Mm-hmm. For soul, what I hear in your describing is like part of calming and quieting ourselves is who are we trusting in, mm-hmm. right? So trusting in God. I wonder, too, if maybe... Bill, there's some wisdom in the fact that you set everything aside for a minute too mm. and stepped out of the noise mm. of mm. even the scriptures yeah. and just sat with what you had read and how often we need to separate ourselves from our phones and our computers and maybe even our Bibles sometimes and just sit in prayer where we're focused on just abiding in God's mm. presence and things like that. And I think that last part, Daniel, is really where I would like for us to kind of land this conversation because... It says, like a weaned child rests against his mother. Now, until the child waned, the child rests against its mother to feed. Mm-hmm. She's there to provide. She's mm-hmm. there to do. She's there to give. She's there to supply. But when the child's weaned, he's coming to rest against her for different reasons. Mm-hmm. He's coming to rest against her because there's love there. There's welcome there. There's acceptance there. Mm-hmm. Just being in her presence without wanting anything from her Mm -hmm. is enough in that moment. And I think as David describes that, it's exactly what you're saying. It's the pulling away and being content, not with what God gave me this time, but being content just in his presence. Mm -hmm. And the New Testament equivalent of that is Hebrews 13, where the writer says, be content with this. For I have said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Mm. Be content with this. Be content with his presence. I mean, what does it take to be contented cows? (laughs) (laughs) What does it take? Well, good pasture, you know, this. What does it take to be contented employees? Well, good benefits, good this. What does it take to be a contented child of God? And I think what David's driving us to is, shouldn't the presence of God be enough? (laughs) Shouldn't just experiencing him be enough to bring contentment to where our hearts and our souls are composed and quieted within us. I think it's a beautiful word picture that I'm not very good at doing. Yeah, and I would say not only are we not very good at it, but um, for those of us who have attempted to lean out of busyness and into quiet, What you often find when you first start doing that, when you separate, whether it's on a vacation for a week or something else, is the first few days are actually some of the most restless, non-peaceful days (laughs) because we're so busy. There's so much noise in our lives that when we begin to pull back, it's almost like it opens the lid on all of the stuff that's been going on inside of us that we didn't recognize. And so it feels like we're doing the opposite of where we're disquieting our souls. But then spending time with God, resting in him, abiding in him, over time, that begins to quiet down. And Mm -hmm. eventually we end up in that space of fully trusting in him and trusting that uh, he can calm even the stuff that we definitely can't calm on our own. And as Elisa said, it begins with that choice. We make that choice to pull away, to be with him, to be in his presence and to allow ourselves to understand that that's enough.
think most of us, when we hear the word hope, we automatically think of something positive. <laughs> However, <laughs> that is not necessarily a universally held perspective. And uh, I've handed out a couple of quotes for a couple of you to read. And one of them has a very negative view of hope. And one has a very positive view of hope. So, <laughs> Elisa, if you would give us a quote from Nietzsche, uh, who always brings real warm, glowing <laughs> uh, stuff, affirming things. So what did Nietzsche say about hope? Okay, he says, hope is the worst of evils, for it prolongs the torments of man. <laughs> okay, now, why would somebody think that hope is the greatest of evils? Because they have none. Or because they've had hopes in the past. Ooh, and those hopes, and mm -hmm. maybe for them, hope was an expectation or an assumption or mm -hmm. a dream, mm -hmm. and it never came true. Yeah, yeah, that's insightful. It sounds like for someone who has given up on the possibility of, of goodness mm -hmm. beyond what they can see, mm -hmm. that having this fatalistic perspective that there is nothing from that standpoint mm -hmm. if there is nothing no chance for goodness then the idea of you hoping for it is actually he used the word evil yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's a very strong word it can be very self-destructive all that y'all are saying resonates with actually proverbs 13 verse 12 which says hope deferred makes the heart sick but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Mm -hmm. What a contrast. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, for Nietzsche or people like him, maybe they never had that fulfilled desire mm. that showed them that there is something good, that there can be better, that there is reason to hope or to have hope for things. So Nietzsche had a very distinctly negative view of hope. Russell, would you read a quote I gave you from a, a man named Eric Erickson, please? Sure. Hope is both the earliest and the most indispensable virtue inherent mm. in the state of being alive. If life is to be sustained, hope must remain. Even where confidence is wounded, trust impaired. Okay, it's almost as if not only is he giving us insight into hope, but he's also giving us insight into Nietzsche <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Even when confidence is wounded and when trust is impaired, mm -hmm. hope is still the earliest and most indispensable virtue. Isn't that an interesting statement? Yeah. It reminds me of uh, in Corinthians where it talks about the big three, right? Mm -hmm. Faith, mm -hmm. hope, and love. Mm -hmm. Those are three like essentials. in our DNA. Mm -hmm. These are the essentials mm -hmm. of what it means to be human and to live well, faith, hope, and love. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to note that Eric Erickson is a psychologist, really the father of developmental psychology, how humans develop. Mm. And so he actually breaks down the human life into segments of development. And you know, the very first one is trust versus mm -hmm. mistrust. So it's really pivotal to his mm -hmm. entire thesis mm -hmm. in that humans are dependent mm -hmm. upon trusting in mm -hmm. a hope that life can be done. It's, that's mm -hmm. really important. Yeah, we need faith. We need a, something or someone to place trust in. We need some place where we can go to feel and experience love. And we also need to know that stuff can get better. If the mess this world is, is the best we have to hope for, why bother, right? So, so I think Eric Erickson's onto something. And I think, again, he's picking up on a thread of an idea that David 
has placed in a psalm that we've been looking at together in these conversations. And uh, we've seen the first two of the expansive three verses of this psalm, mm-hmm. and we want to see all three of them today. So, uh, Daniel, would you read Psalm 131 and just read the entire psalm for us today? Sure. A Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. Now, what I'd suggest to you is that there's been a building process going on in this psalm. He started off with a call to humility, Mm. a call to humility that recognizes that God is God and I'm not, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to rest in him. And that kind of humility leads to the contentment pictured in a child who just wants its mother's presence and doesn't really Mm -hmm. want anything from her. And when you have that humility leading to that contentment, it leads us to a confident hope in that God in whom we've learned to be content. What's interesting is that in these songs of ascent, we've talked about, and as you read it, Daniel, you read the superscription of Song of Ascents. These are that 15-psalm subset that we talked about in an earlier conversation that the pilgrims would sing on their way up to Jerusalem for the feast times. And the previous psalm, 130, is one that really kind of deals with repentance, that need for repentance when our life goes off the rails and when we go away from the presence of God. And when we have those seasons of repentance, we repent, but Hmm. the act of repentance calls us to hope in God. Notice Psalm 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Okay, The act of repentance drives us to find our hope in him. Now, just the reality of being in his presence Hmm. calls us to hope in him. So one is, this is what I've done The other is almost like, this is what I've experienced Mm -hmm. as a child of God. Those are different things, aren't they? You know, I love how you just pointed that out because sometimes, at least for me, and y'all can see if you weigh in with this, but I can experience God's presence when I have great need, like when I'm repenting. Great need, okay. Mm -hmm. And it may be more difficult for me to be content in the daily just Mm -hmm. with him. And then you're saying, but if I can remember what he's provided for me in Mm. repentance, that helps me Mm. access his Mm. presence differently. And maybe our personalities are, we tend one more than the other of these postures, but you know, God's really calling us that he's available in both, both Mm. when we need him in repentance and just because of who he is in relationship. Do y'all find that kind of teeter-totter? Yeah, actually, I was thinking about the aspect of repentance and hope in the relationship there. And I, and I think that when you look at Psalm 130 and 131, you can make the case that pretty much our choice to sin is a reflection of a lack of hope all the time, every time. Because mm-hmm. think about it. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what sin does is it says, I can't trust for God to meet my needs legitimately. So I have to take matters in my own hands and meet them illegitimately. And I have no idea of Nietzsche's orientation, but I'm wondering if his lack of hope came from an impossibility 
of repentance, of forgiveness, of there's yeah. nothing mm-hmm. beyond me. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's related to pride because the pride that says, I can see all the angles and everything that's possible, all the possibilities, and there is no hope. Mm. So mm-hmm. therefore, there is no yep. point. So therefore, I need to do it myself. And so it's just interesting that hope then becomes this command. Instead of being haughty, instead of being pride, instead of trying to take matters up in your own hands, mm-hmm. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're really good. And this is an important time for them to be doing that mm-hmm. because as we talked about in the very first conversation, there's five books of Psalms and they've all been building up to book five that kind of declares the now and the not yet that we talk about a lot. And the now is that like there's redemption happening but it's not yet in that we still see the brokenness in the world. And so in those moments of running into the brokenness of the world, where we're waiting for Jesus to fully make all Mm -hmm. things good and better and perfect again, to wipe away all tears, to take away the effects of death, that is a time to find hope, to Mm -hmm. find hope in God, because in many ways, when we run into those things, the only place we have to go Mm -hmm. is hope in God. And the already not yet that you're talking about is what he exactly calls them to. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Mm -hmm. Hope is not just forevermore. It's for right now. And hope's not just for right now. It's also for forevermore. (laughs) And that's the beauty of it. That's what makes it so marvelous. And for us, we even have more reason for hope because we live on this side of an empty tomb. Right. And we have hope that's not just rooted in what God has done through Exodus from Egypt or whatever, we have hope because God has conquered death on our behalf. Elisa, would you read 1 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21? And I want you to see there the absolute linkage between our hope and Jesus's resurrection. Okay, for Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who, through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Key phrase, so that. He raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope would be in God. In his context, that's what David was calling Israel to, Hmm. both now and forevermore. If we have a God that we're willing to trust in a humble, childlike trust, a God whose presence we are learning to find is enough, then where else would we want to put our hope? Mm -hmm. And a God has proven himself faithful in the past. David and Israel is looking back to see Mm. how God's been faithful. And as a result of that, they have that trust and that hope. And in the same way, we have the invitation to look back and see how God has been faithful, which then allows us to walk into the future with hope. And Jesus embodies both the anticipation of all those hopes and dreams and also something different that also reminds us that God has the right to edit Mm. and audit our expectations and change those. Mm. And that's why I love in Romans 5, where it actually refers to Jesus as the hope of Mm. glory, Mm. the definite article. Mm. He is the epitome of that hope and has the authority and the grace and kindness toward us to actually adjust and align the things that we want and hope for to something even greater than what we might ever anticipate, which is ultimately found in him. 
And I think the worshipers making their way up to Jerusalem for the feast time, singing 131, are experiencing a similar kind of thing. They're allowing themselves to be audited and edited, to use your words, <laughs> Rasul, to recalibrate so that their hearts are not haughty and they are humble, so that as they come into God's presence, they can be content there, and that as a result, they find that that's where hope resides, in the person of their God. Yeah, where there's hope in God, there's life. Hope in Him fills us with fresh courage and makes us strong again. We're studying Psalm 131 together in this Discover the Word podcast, a song of childlike faith. And uh, we'll wrap up our look at this meaningful little three-verse psalm after this preview of where our study of the Scriptures takes us in our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, we'll be exploring another psalm together. After looking at a song of childlike faith, uh, we're going to go to Psalm 18, a song of mature reflection. We seem to live in a culture that's obsessed with youth hmm. and youthfulness and the young. And, and I say that as an old guy who may be a little bit bitter about <laughs> it. But I mean, what about that obsession with youth is good? And what about it's not so good? Because I think it probably is both. Yeah, Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry return to see how Psalm 18 provides perspective in this youth versus aged debate. Uh, neither side has all the answers. Yeah. Some of the answers of the young, which Russell and Daniel are younger than Elisa and I, mm -hmm. some of the values of the young is that you can bring fresh perspectives where mm -hmm. maybe we can be stuck in the past in our thinking. By the same time, we can bring the wisdom, of, hopefully, of experience and years lived and things like that that can bring a different kind of value to a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we talk about both sides of this equation, we want to spend our time in these conversations looking at a psalm where we see an event that happened when David was young and he reflects on it later in life when he's old. Yeah, it's a study of Psalm 18, a song of mature reflection on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now let's listen as the group wraps up this look at Psalm 131, a song of childlike faith. Well, in these conversations, we've been doing a deep dive into what's an actually very short <laughs> psalm, mm -hmm. uh, which feels weird because you wouldn't think a short psalm would have that much in it. But apparently Psalm 131 does. <laughs> well, what are some of the things we've been thinking about together? Well, we put it in its context. So yeah. it's a song of ascents, which is one of the worship songs that the people of Israel would sing together on their way up to Jerusalem mm -hmm. for high holy days. Mm -hmm. And so you get this sense of the whole community singing this together as they remember God's faithfulness in the past and expect him to meet them in this celebration or this festival in Jerusalem. Good, good. And there's a concrete uh, positioning of the psalmist acknowledging that he is not God and that he is lowlier than God. And even as he's ironically going up to the heights, you know, he positions himself as less than that. So mm -hmm. it's a humble heart mm -hmm. that he approaches God with, very aware that you know, he's mm -hmm. not God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the unexpected, counterintuitive emphasis on a childlike mm. perspective and posture toward 
God and toward life, mm-hmm. uh, one that definitely understands that there's more to understand yeah. <laughs> and that uh, yeah. really sees God as trustworthy mm-hmm. for us to put our hope in. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes was from one of my favorite Bible teachers from years gone by who said, I've never in my life known as much as I did when I was a freshman in seminary. <laughs> and he was in his 80s when he said that. Uh-huh. You know, There's this posture mm-hmm. of being a lifelong learner. There's this posture of recognizing I'm not enough and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And there's a posture of saying, if I'm going to have hope, It's going to have to be in something outside of myself. And David rings that bell with, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, Mm -hmm. as we saw in our last conversation. So as we think about Psalm 131 and all these elements and how they work together, I'd like for us to read it again. And we'll just remind ourselves of what David's been telling us this week. Okay, Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. Hmm. And that's that already not yet thing that in our last conversation you were reminding us of, Daniel. We saw that this humble heart, this humble posture puts us in a place where we can experience contentment with God and then ultimately to find our hope in him. Now, we started off our conversations actually about Psalm 131 Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. We started off in Matthew 18 with the words of Jesus. I want us to circle back to that and see if there's some resonance happening between David's words and Jesus's words, and maybe how we can practically grab hold to some of these things. Just remind us, what was the context of Jesus's words in Matthew 18? What was he responding to? He'd received a question about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4. And let's hear those with the echoes of Psalm 131 behind them. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we kind of have talked about this a little bit, but I'm getting more and more a sense of how countercultural that these ideas are, both here in Matthew 18 and in Psalm 131, for where we live now in our cultural context. And it was probably very similar there Mm -hmm. in some ways, but the cultural context that we live in is raising ourselves up, right? Like making a name for yourself, which is the opposite of taking on the heart of humility, of trusting in ourselves, what we can do. And both of these are trusting in something bigger than yourself, who is God, Mm -hmm. calming and quieting ourselves, (laughs) which is the opposite of the culture that we live in, where Mm -hmm. it's more about actually hurry up and see if you can get more done. And by the way, here's a device in your pocket for more noise. (laughs) And then the idea of staying in a childlike state at all is so looked down upon now because it's very much about getting past that, getting to maturity. And I put that in air quotes too. So mm-hmm. it's like, it feels very countercultural, these ideas 
that Jesus is inviting us into. I think you're right, and I'm thinking about it in terms of what we think we can know. We think our goal in life is to know it all. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can study my Bible, you know, I'm going to get all the answers. And I... I'm not sure the older I get, you know, like what you were saying, Bill, about, you know, the smartest you ever were is freshman year of seminary. The older I get, the more I'm I'm like, I'm not sure that's the goal to know it. Yeah, I, I'm struck by that in the second part of verse one, where it says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. It seems like there's a race in our culture to be able to concern yourself with all matters and think <laughs> yeah. that nothing is, yeah. you know, beneath you speaking into with great conviction, authority and clarity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a certain type of humility in how we come to know things that I think we need to really take some real uh, attention to, because here we have Jesus. Who is he confronting? Who is his main opposition? It was the Pharisees, the ones who were the experts in the, the law. The smart guys, yeah. You know, one of the most chilling verses to me in the New Testament, it was like, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But in doing so, you reject the one who gives you life. Yeah. That is, yeah. if that's not like a warning label to be careful about how presumptuous we can mm -hmm. be, um, then I don't know what is. Yeah. 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 When we hear Jesus's words where he takes a child and makes the child the example you're right, Daniel. It's counterintuitive now. It was counterintuitive then. It'll probably be counterintuitive until the kingdom comes. <laughs> and then it'll make sense because it'll be, oh, yeah, so that's what he was talking about. Oh, it'll about. shock us, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I honestly think that there's something about life in a broken world that pushes us away from simplicity. Mm -hmm. And just like there's a difference between childish and childlike, there's a difference between simplicity and simplistic, right? I mean, Haddon Robinson, who mm -hmm. used to sit at a table like this and have conversations like this, used to say that we need to find the simplicity that's on the other side of complexity. Mm. You don't ignore the complexity. You push through and you say, okay, maybe this is enough. Yeah. Maybe this is enough. And I think for me, again, when I think about simplicity i think about the value of how we treat people even with whom we disagree mm -hmm. yeah. and the aspect of love in mm -hmm. that and not saying that there aren't convictions to be had i mean right here in this passage you know it's israel put your hope in the lord not in Baal, but put your hope in the lord yeah. and there is that clarity yet at the same time with a certain sense of humility and when i think about the theme through scripture even david himself when you look at him when he was anointed right mm -hmm. samuel was presumptuous he thought oh i know who it's going to be it's going to be your <laughs> oldest brother oh no it's going to be the brother after that yeah. <laughs> brother after that yeah, yeah. and god said no i'm picking the child mm -hmm. yeah the one that's yeah. not even here the He's one that the his dad didn't even think he was worth bringing <laughs> yeah. to the draft yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i think that's the essence of what jesus is saying mm -hmm. we've talked about this before we sometimes talk about jesus being the upside down king of an upside down kingdom but i think that's totally wrong it's the world that's upside down. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus and his kingdom are right side up. Mm. And it's only as we allow him to recalibrate yeah. our hearts around his perspective and his values and his view mm -hmm. that we see that there really is contentment mm -hmm. in taking the place of a child in not having to know it all and not having to do it all. There really is hope in building a relationship in the presence of a God who really is greater than I can imagine mm -hmm. or understand. 
Yeah, and that makes it make sense when you think about the upside down kingdom really being the right side up. <laughs> that then Jesus says, "Don't look at the adult; look at the child." Yeah, <laughs> because this is the person who is mm-hmm. the most like me, who will believe and trust, who understands that yeah. the world is bigger than them, and that they can't possibly understand mm-hmm. and try to fix it all themselves. Yeah be more like that in relation to your father. There's some beautiful pieces of art that express that craziness that we're Mm -hmm. talking about. Uh, I'm thinking of one where a child has his hand on the head of a lion and a a lamb is there. And I like that image that's given to Mm -hmm. us. The image of Jesus with children, for sure, but just looking Mm -hmm. at the image of a child. And Mm -hmm. we do it with our own, with our own babies. And we think that's amazing but then we grow up and they grow up and we forget yeah yeah and i think about how much time and pressure i put on myself to try to figure out these big and lofty things sometimes where i find the most life is when i actually am doing whatever it is that my kids want to do and i step away from Mm -hmm. the scriptures and prayer and all this but i'm sitting on a dock putting worms on a hook and catching small Mm. little fish that i would typically ignore but how much joy I find in that or playing basketball with my son or whatever. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's in closing the book on all the lofty things and uh, spending time with them that I actually experience the heart of God better than I do Mm -hmm. in one of those Christian air quotes, Mm -hmm. Christian things. I think what we've figured out is that both Jesus and David were onto something here. (laughs) Uh, And what they're onto is something that's not only healthy, but it might actually be holy mm. in its own way. Elisa, one final time, would you read us the three verses of Psalm 131 as we close? Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Important study this week. Uh, We often make our relationship with God much more complicated than we need to, don't we? There's a simple beauty in knowing God and resting in Him like a little child. Psalm 131, I hope you'll remember it as a song of childlike faith. Thanks to Bill Crowder for leading this week and to Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry for their contributions. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. I encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Now here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, it is our mission to spread the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible to people all around the world. We've been telling the story of Jesus for over 80 years now. And at this point, we're so glad you have a chance to sit down and be part of our conversations. And uh, we'd also like to see even more people have access to our devotional and audio and video and internet resources. By giving a one-time gift or becoming a monthly Discover the Word partner, you can help us to continue our efforts in fulfilling this worthwhile mission. So go to discovertheword.org, click the Donate tab, 
and explore what some of your options are. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.